Well, it's Remembrance Sunday, and hundreds of thousands of people are in acts of remembrance across the nation as we're gathered here this morning. And one of the things our nation is remembering, particularly at the moment, is the centenary of the First World War, 1914 to 1918. And the media, particularly the BBC, as many of you will be aware, have been running ongoing series of um, uh, programs and documentaries about the First World War, one of the most significant uh, wars that we are remembering. And it's 1916, 100 years ago, that has been in the mind of the media and the historians uh, during this year. 1916 was marked by an astonishing and tragic military event, which I'm just going to refer to briefly as an example of the sort of things that we are considering on Remembrance Day. The First World War had been going for two years. Trench warfare was, uh, forgive me, forgive the expression, entrenched. Uh, stalemate on the Western Front as the Germans faced the British Imperial forces and the French, and there was very little progress going on. Then in the mind of the British Supreme Commander, who's coming up on the screen now, uh, General Douglas Haig, uh, came an idea for what he described as a big push. He felt, and his commanders with him, that a decisive breakthrough was needed and was within the capacity of Britain and France to break the German power on the Western Front. And so an, an enormous accumulation of military hardware, of military forces, and particularly of artillery, uh, gathered during the early months and the middle of, of uh, 1916. And the commanders had, amongst themselves, decided that this big push was going to take place on the 1st of July, 1916. Just over 100 years ago, this event has been commemorated in the media. And in order to prepare the way for this big push, they mounted um, in northern France a, an artillery bombardment the like of which had never been seen probably ever that I can think of, certainly not in the First World War. For seven days, without a single pause, night and day, the British and French artillery positions behind the front lines, some distance behind, pounded the German positions incessantly with the heaviest and most powerful artillery that they could. Such was the volume of this bombardment that Londoners could hear it across the channel when the wind was in the right direction or on a still day, day and night. Londoners could hear the distant thunder of the bombardment that was going on in the last few days of June, 1916. It went on for seven days and seven nights and was time to finish at the early part of 1st of July, 1916. And it was aimed, obviously, at so demoralizing and destroying the German forces, particularly their machine gun positions, that uh, the British and French could make very big advances in a very, very short period of time. 
It was prepared, they prepared 100,000 men in the British Army, as well as the French, I'm speaking of the British particularly, 100,000 men were prepared for the order in the early part of the 1st of July to go, quote, over the top. And so it was that just a short time before the assault was to begin, there was a sudden eerie silence on the Western Front. All the guns ceased. Every German knew what that meant. The assault was about to begin. All the preparations had been made. The commanders had done their, their planning. The, the munitions factories in Britain had been working overtime. Medical su support and nursing support. Ambulances were, had been mobilized to the highest extent ever. And so it was on the 1st of July that 100,000 British soldiers went over the top. Tragically, this was the worst day in the history of the British Army in any war that had ever been fought before or since. Because on that day, 19,240 of those 100,000 lost their lives, according to official statistics, and over 38,000 wounded were recorded, making the total casualty figures on the first day of this battle, known as the Battle of the Somme, to be in excess of 57,000 men. More than half who went over the top on that day either died or suffered injuries. This did not deter the military commanders, and the push went on. Very negligible gains were made, less than one mile moving forward on the first day. But for the weeks and months that followed into the autumn, the British and their French counterparts maintained this assault on the German lines in the expectation that they were very close to breaking uh, the German military. And indeed, they were, but they didn't. Casualties mounted on all sides to an astonishing extent. The Battle of the Somme petered out in the autumn as the weather closed in and appalling rainfall particularly hindered the advance of the Allied forces. Some seven miles had been gained on some parts of the front, but this was negligible compared with the aspiration, which was to break through entirely, to push into the heartland of Germany and threaten the heart, the very center of the German uh, imperial nation. This aspiration was unfulfilled. And so as the military historians have counted the cost of the Battle of the Somme, on all sides, they have calculated that in that four or five month period, over one million casualties took place, dead and wounded. Now the impact on the British nation was astonishing. A propaganda film appeared which showed great successes, and that was so popular uh, as a propaganda film. It had accurate footage, but it edited the theme in it to show the positives rather than the costs. So popular was this film that in the autumn of 1916, more people viewed that film than viewed the latest edition of Star Wars in this country that came out just recently.
which I viewed myself. And the other impact on the British nation, once it began to, once news began to filter through as to what was really going on, was the astonishing impact of the casualties. Because of course, we're talking of tens, even hundreds of thousands of casualties in dire circumstances, in very inadequate field hospital situations who were transported by their thousand back across the channel by ship and by ambulance or sometimes even by train taken from the coastal ports into London and to other areas where all medical facilities in the south of England were overwhelmed by an unprecedented wave of military casualties. And so it became the reality in Britain that this big push had not got all that far. This is just one example of what we remember. It happens to be topical because it happened a hundred years ago this year. It's been highlighted in the media for that reason. It happens to be astonishingly large as the statistics I've quoted to you indicate. But the cost of the two world wars in lives is so great that it's emotionally incalculable for most people to try and calculate what happened. The First World War, the casualties under 20, under 20 million, but not far under 20 million probable casualties, was a gigantic uh, disaster for Europe. But it was dwarfed by the Second World War, where the casualties spread in vast numbers across a much larger part of the world. And so these acts of remembrance are important. A lot was at stake. A lot of corporate memories are held in our nation. A lot of family memories. These events are now so distant in the past that even uh, that veterans from the First World War hardly exist. Veterans from the Second World War are getting smaller in number as the years pass. But the significance of the events remains important. It's part of our national life. These were times of intense crisis. The outcome of the wars, uh, if they'd been different, would have had a drastic effect on the course of the life of our nation in both wars, without any shadow of doubt. And the threat of the Nazis uh, and their aspiration to conquer ever greater areas should never ever be downplayed. It was a very fundamental threat to the well-being of all of humanity. These were great costs and drastic events. So why, why do we remember? It is important to keep in touch with part of our national history, even just reflecting on the fact that we've had uh, international football matches and rugby union matches this weekend where acts of remembrance were held. Hundreds of thousands participated willingly. Millions and millions viewed electronically by uh, television and participated in, even in some small way in this act of remembrance. It's important to honor the dead. Some of you will know people who've died in, in conflicts. And for you, it's important personally, as it was for my father who fought in the Second World War against the Japanese every year 
for him to pause and remember his school friends and university friends who never lived through the war was very important. And for some of you, that's an important part of this act of remembrance because you know people personally. For some of us, we're helping the bereaved, particularly from recent wars. And for all of us, we're involved in helping the next generation, the growing generation, to understand some of our history. I was involved in this very personally when I was a history teacher because part of the GCSE syllabus that I was given as I first started my teaching career was World War I. And it was very interesting to engage with youngsters who had lived all their life in peacetime to try and work out what they made of these astonishing events. We had some remarkable discussions which I can remember to this day. This leads us to think of something a little bit more wide, uh, wider, just thinking about remembrance more generally. I want to propose to you that there are three types of remembrance that are very important for all of us. No, the first one is the one we've been talking about, remembering key events in our culture, key things that happened that shaped who we are as a nation. And these two world wars obviously fulfill that criteria, and some other key events have done so as well. And I think this is very important because most of us hearing this talk today will have had no personal experience of war or its impacts. And I always think the world is divided between those who've experienced war and those who haven't. And they tend to see things differently. Most people who've experienced war have a great, great concern for the maintenance of peace in the future and a great awareness that the loss of peace and the arising of war is a really profound threat to nations and in, in the current world, even to the human race. War is dangerous. War has unprecedented and unforeseeable uh, consequences. My childhood was marked by a close brush with a war. I grew up in Pakistan, and our family lived very near the border with India, not so far away, in a place called Kashmir on the foothills of the Himalayas, in a disputed territory. And as a young child, I remember my parents beginning to talk about the fact that Pakistan and India were drawing their armies close to the border, and there was a threat of a war. And I was very concerned about this reality. I then began to see in the school my father was teaching at some people disappearing, members of staff, even some of the senior boys, some of the people working in the gardens. Where had they gone? They were signing up for the war. I began to see guns, and I was only a child. And I began to hear airplanes flying overhead. And I began to see men on pickup trucks with old rifles firing into the air when they saw an airplane and shouting uh, curses at the airplanes flying overhead. And I saw the worried looks on my parents' face and I saw the packing cases packing up. What I didn't know was that our family was on the verge of being evacuated. And the war started and we could hear 
distant rumbling from time to time. We could hear aerial combat. The cases were packed. And then the news came, ceasefire. We were one day away from being evacuated. But I only knew that retrospectively. Even as an impressionable child, that left a mark on me. I wonder whether any of you have had an experience where you've come close to a military conflict and it kind of leaves a mark on you. You're aware of what would have happened. I know the sort of things that would have happened in that area had a full-blown war taken place and they would have been very dire and extremely, uh, caused extremely great suffering. Many people of my generation remember the Cold War, the threat of a nuclear conflict as a profound reality. I remember that came home to me very forcibly when I visited my older brother in Germany in the 1980s. He was a helicopter pilot with the British RAF and his job at that time, one of his main jobs was to fly on an uh, aircraft patrol along the Iron Curtain between East and West Germany. And just to see the fragility of the situation in Europe then left its mark on me. And thinking about recent conflicts, for example, the Ukraine war, which I've been uh, involved with in a peripheral way, seeing people I know who've died, reminds me that war is a serious reality. We should always be praying for peace and thanking God for the peace that he's bring us, bringing us. So I think for in our culture, it's good to bring these things to mind from time to time. But it's not just in our culture generally where memory is important. That applies to us actually as individuals and as families. But particularly I want to speak of individuals. Because coming to terms with the past, good and bad, is part of what it means to really understand who you are and how you fit into this world. Those of you who know me well know that I have a habit which not everyone likes, which is to collect photos in old-fashioned albums. And I've been doing it since the 1970s in chronological order, family and other events. And I haven't gone that digital, so I still keep the old-fashioned system. And in our sitting room at home are nearly 100 chronologically ordered photo albums with over 10,000 chronologically ordered photos. Now, there's an obsessive compulsive order disorder, <laughs> if ever there was one. For me, it's like a diary, because I'm too lazy to keep a diary but I'm not too lazy to take photos. And people get a little bit twitchy when they say something in our sitting room and then I say, that reminds me. <laughs> and I head to the photo albums. They know they're in for trouble because <laughs> they're going to have to go through them. You know how boring that can be sometimes. But we all have different ways of keeping in touch with our past. And I think it's a very important part of our human identity to keep in touch with our past and memories of things from the past. There's some very tough memories. I'll come to those in a moment. Just over, just about a year ago, 
I was asked to go to Vancouver to do some leadership training for a church there. Some of you may remember. And just before I went, I was thinking about my family history because my mother was a Canadian and has a huge Canadian family who immigrated uh, to Canada from Britain uh, many decades ago. In fact, I have far more Canadian relatives than English relatives. And I looked through a family history that someone had compiled of the Canadian relatives. And I noticed a very interesting thing which I'd never spotted before. One of my ancestors, about 80 years ago, was actually an Anglican clergyman in Canada. And he'd been a clergyman in Vancouver Cathedral. So I found myself on a Sunday in December in Vancouver last year, just about to preach in downtown Vancouver in a state-of-the-art media center with a contemporary church, thinking my great-uncle preached in this city 80 years ago. So before I went to that service, early morning, I got my jogging clothes on, as I tend to do, and I jogged across downtown Vancouver to Vancouver Cathedral, and I shocked the caretaker who'd only just opened up he suddenly saw an Englishman appear drenched because it was raining in his shorts, telling him that his great uncle used to work here. It wasn't at all convincing to him. <laughs> but he let me in, and I looked at the pulpit, and I looked at the cathedral, and I connected with something of my past. And all of us, just as our nation needs to connect with our corporate past, we also need to connect with our personal past to a certain extent. Some feel more need of it than others. But it helps us to know who we are, where we came from, and what the significance of our life is. This particular memory reminded me that there's been faith in my Canadian side of my family for generations. And in some unknown way, I've received a deposit from them through my mother. I wonder whether you have interesting, significant, important things about your past. I wonder whether you ever go back to your old school, not something that we all like doing. doesn't always bring good memories, does it? Or your old home in another place. Or a place you visited as a child. A friend of mine was wandering around Bellevue last week and they met an Australian man who was staring intently at a terraced house. And so she approached this man and said, can I help you in any way? He said, yeah, I've come all the way from Australia to look at this house. This is where my grandmother came from. And I've never been to this country before, but I need to connect. I need to know. Does that need to know that need to connect that's part of us. But then sometimes there are very good reasons not to connect because it's painful, dark, tragic, sad. There are unanswered questions. But just as in remembrance the nation has to connect with some painful memories and some families and people have to have painful experiences. There's a catharsis involved in that process. So for us, at a personal level, 
some things that are dark and difficult, we still need to find responsible, meaningful ways and careful ways to connect with them. I have a very good friend in another part of the country. He's not a church leader, but he's a prominent Christian whose wife suddenly died very unexpectedly of an illness just about a year ago, a similar age to me with adult children. I knew the family reasonably well. I'll call him Joe. And I said to Joe, identifying very deeply with a loss in their family, I said, I'm going to walk the road with you if you like. Can I phone you up from time to time as the days go on? Because this is a tough road. I spoke to Joe last week because the first anniversary of his wife's death is just coming up. And we had a profound conversation on the phone. He's allowed me to be part of his journey. It was his choice, not mine. And he told me of tearful moments. He told me of difficult decisions. He told me of heartache and loneliness. But I knew that it was better for Joe to connect than not to connect. It's better for us to remember than not to remember. It's better for us to engage with some of the complexities of our national history than not to. And it's important for us to engage with some of our personal history. Sometimes we have to do it very responsibly and carefully. Sometimes it's not actually possible to do it all on our own. And we need to ask a friend. Please do that if you need to do it. So cultures and nations remember, individuals and families remember. This leads me to my final point. When you're a Christian, apart from your own story and your own nation, those are important to you as a Christian, just like they are to anyone else. What do we need to remember to keep our faith strong, vivid, powerful and central in our lives. Interestingly enough, there are two particular commands in the New Testament of things we need to remember. And when it uses the word remember, uh, in the particular verses I'm going to quote to you at the moment, it's an imperative. It says, call to mind. Not so much that you've forgotten, but you might not be focused quite enough on the things that matter most. Here's the first one, Ephesians 2, 11 to 13. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done by the body, uh, by, in the body by human hands, that's the Jews, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope, and without God in the world, but now in Christ, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Paul's message here is, don't forget the difference between being outside of Christ and inside of Christ. Don't see it as two minor versions of the same reality. Life was a little bit grayer then, it's a little bit brighter now. Life was a bit lonelier then, and it's a bit more communal now. Paul says, no, it wasn't like that. You are without hope. 
And without God in this world. And he's speaking to believers. Gentile believers in, in Ephesus at the time. You are without hope of any meaning, ultimate meaning in this life or any eternal life and without God, without Christ, without God. That's his message. Wow. And so he says to the people who believe and they know about their salvation. He's not doing an alpha course with them. He's not saying maybe you'd like to come and join the faith. It's it's better than paganism. He's not saying that. He's saying, you're in. Because the previous verse said you've been saved by faith through grace. You've, you've experienced salvation, but don't forget what you've been saved from. Remember. Imperative. Can I encourage you to remember and to think, what would my life really be like if I hadn't found Christ? And if you today aren't sure you found Christ, there's a challenge there for you. The opportunity is there. The second verse, this is a short one. Sometimes Paul spoke in very compressed sentences, and here's one of them. He says to Timothy, remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, Descended from David, this is my gospel. There's a lot compressed in there. Because the point about being raised from the dead, as he says in Romans 1, is that if Jesus was raised from the dead, that validated the truth of his death on the cross. It showed that he was the Son of God and that an atonement had been carried out. So when he says raised from the dead, it's everything implied by the fact he's raised from the dead, not just that he conquered death, but actually created an atonement, a sacrifice for us. So remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead. In other words, no ordinary prophet, no ordinary religious teacher. The Son of God descended from David. In other words, the promise of him coming goes back hundreds and hundreds of years into the Old Testament. It was always there. It was going to happen. This is my gospel. And so it seems appropriate that Christ himself gave us an act of remembrance, knowing that hum human beings need to remember creatively, meaningfully, positively. They need to remember their personal past. They need to engage with their cultural past. And they need to engage with their spiritual past and spiritual present in order to live for the future. And that's why communion is a wonderful, meaningful symbol for us. I'm going to close in a minute. And I'm going to ask in a moment that we play a video, which uh, is just it's a video of a song written by a man called Paul Oakley. Some of you know this song. There is a crimson stream that washes white as snow, a love that longs to know me as your own. This hope, this light of life, this grace that won't let go, this fire that burns can change a heart of stone. Nothing 
can stop this love from reaching me. And later on, the price was paid in full to set me free. Stop this love. 
So let's just close our eyes. We're just going to conclude by praying. Father God, I want to say thank you that as we reflect back today on war and conflict, we remember that there was a day in the First World War where it came to an end on that 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month. We're commemorating and remembering that particular thing. And we thank you too that VE Day occurred in the Second World War and there was an end and peace was declared. And we thank you, Jesus, that there was a moment on the cross where you said, it is finished. It is accomplished. The work is done. The work of reconciliation where peace could be wrought, where we could be drawn close, where we could find our salvation. And so we remember these things today with grateful hearts. And we say thank you. Amen.